0: Environmentally conscious, socially responsible, low stress, non addictive, general neutral winter solstice holiday. And on top of that, to wish you a fiscally successful, personally fulfilling, and medically uncomplicated recognition of the generally accepted calendar year of 2024. But none of that political correctness. Here at Riverside, we just say Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Amen. Like a poll said that 70% of the people wish that the stores would just say Merry Christmas. But nonetheless, we got to put up with all that. Well, it's Christmas Eve. And we're pausing from 1 Thessalonians again. And we're going to focus on the Christmas account. And I know it's a busy season. I feel that too. Um, But for the first 45 minutes or so... You like the or so part? That, that gives me some flexibility or so. <laughs> it might give you some anxiety. <laughs> for the next 45 minutes or so, we're going to just try to still our hearts before the Lord and look into his word and see what he has for us this morning. And so maybe just take a deep breath and just put the busyness on hold for just a little bit. And the message this morning, the title is actually a question. And it's this, is there room? Is there room? We're going to look at two passages of scripture, both of which center on the birth of Jesus. We'll look at Luke chapter 2 and verses 1 through 20. And also Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. And we're not going to go through them verse by verse in as much detail, But there are three thoughts that I'd like to try to draw from them. And the first is the reality of his birth. And then secondly, the response to his birth. And finally, the reason for his birth. So we'll be looking for those. And I want to start by just reading through these two passages on the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. And you can turn there with me if you like. Or just sit back and take it in. We'll start with those really familiar words of Luke chapter 2. This is God's word that we're reading, and God speaks to us through his word. So it reads, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. She wrapped them in cloths and placed them in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people today In the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them, But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for the things they had heard and seen which were just as they had been told. That's the first account. I'd like to turn back two books now to Matthew chapter 2 and another account of the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. We're going to pick it up just a little later in Matthew's gospel. And we'll read verses 1 through 21. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. They were overjoyed on coming to the house. They saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, So and, 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 and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophet, he will be called a Nazarene. So this is God's word. Two different accounts of the events surrounding the birth of our Lord. And with these two passages in mind, I just want to look first at the reality of his birth. When I was little, my mother used to read me stories, children's stories, and I loved it. I would cuddle up on her shoulder or on her lap, and she would read to me, and I just loved it. She'd read stories like Beauty and Beast, and Little Red Riding Hood and Rumpelstiltskin. Remember that one? And most of those children's stories begin with the same familiar words, once upon a time. And when you hear that, now we know, okay, this is a fictitious fanciful, imaginary story, uh, mostly written for children. It's real common, once upon a time. It's so common, in fact, that one little girl asked, Daddy, do all fairy tales begin with once upon a time? And he said, no, there are a whole series of fairy tales that begin with, if elected, I promise. (laughs) Those are even more common, I think, political fairy tales. We're hearing a lot of them. But many of us probably grew up with stories of once upon a time. Well, in addition to fairy tales, my mom would also read me Bible stories. And that was great. Bible stories don't begin with once upon a time. And they're not imaginative, fictional stories. They're historical accounts. But unless there's a clear distinction made to a child, they could easily think a Bible story is just another fairy tale. Maybe you grew up thinking that the Christmas story is just a fairy tale. It's often read to children. It's loved by children. It's about a little baby. It has all the makings of a fairy tale. In fact, one of my favorite enduring memories from childhood is watching a Charlie Brown Christmas on television. Did any of y'all see that? It came out in 1965. I was already around then. It was where Charlie Brown in frustration, he says, doesn't anyone know what Christmas is all about? And little Lioness replies, sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And he goes to the middle of the stage and calls for lights. And there he stands and he recites Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 20 that we just read. I I love that. I watched it again this week a couple times. Just just that part of it. And, And I just love this story. It's it's a beautiful story, and even a child can understand it. But it's not a children's story in the sense of a fanciful, fictional account. It's actual history. And if you want to turn with me to the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 1, and verses 1 through 4. You might just leave a marker there in Matthew 2. We'll come back to it. Well, let's go to Luke 1 now. And listen to how Luke begins his gospel. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, from the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now Luke wasn't an eyewitness to the gospel events like Matthew and Mark and John and James and Peter and others, but he used his education and his experience as a physician to gather a very detailed, orderly, almost scientific account of those events. And so, his, rather than starting with once upon a time, we see throughout Luke's gospel phrases like this. Luke 1 verse 5, in the time of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah. Luke two verses one and two. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Luke three verses one and two. In the fiftieth, I'm sorry, in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the desert. Well, those things contain both historical, political, and religious date markers. He doesn't say once upon a time. He says at this specific point in history, again and again, Luke emphasizes this. It's very specific. But what's more remarkable even than Luke documenting this is the fact that God knew it all in advance. Matt talked about that a little bit during our worship this morning. God knew the exact times And places and circumstances of these events from before time even began. From before the creation of the world, God knew. And he chose Mary to be the one who would bear the Savior. And he knew that Joseph and Mary would be forced from their home and they'd have to travel to Bethlehem. And he knew exactly when they would have to do that. And he knew that that baby would be born while they're there. The book of Micah is one of the prophetic books in the Old Testament. And like Isaiah, it was written about 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Now the entire Old Testament, going back some of it 1,600 years when it was recorded, it was all written and translated into Greek and circulated 200 years before Jesus was born. It was already a bestseller. This was in writing. There was no late dating of these prophecies, as some might suggest. And so Micah, in Micah 5.2, God said this through the prophet. He said, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient of times what a strange prophecy and so 700 years later we find the christmas account in those days now once upon a time in those days caesar augustus issued a decree and so here they go onto their ancestors town of bethlehem now caesar augustus mentioned by luke he was the adopted son of julius caesar there's a lot of history on this guy. He assumed his father's rule in 27 BC at age 19. And so he was probably about 36 years old at this time, and the census normally had one or two purposes. The first one was registration for tax. They didn't want taxation without registration, for fear they might miss somebody and not get their income, their money. And then they also did it for military service. Neither one of these were very popular with the people. But the Jews were exempt from serving in the Roman military. But they weren't exempt from taxes. And Rome exacted uh, quite a tax burden on them. So verse 4, Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, to the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now, it's remarkable that Luke gathered and collected all this and recorded it. It was preserved for us. It's more remarkable that God knew it all in advance. And it's even more remarkable in my mind that he's been telling about it for centuries. God didn't just say after the fact, oh yeah, I knew about that. Anybody can say that. He prophesied. Prophecy is history written in advance. He prophesied about it. Matt read this verse this morning, Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. Imagine being Isaiah, who's having to write this. Now, you know that if any prophecy doesn't come true, The sentence was death. If anybody says, thus saith the Lord, and it doesn't come true, he was taken out of the prophecy pool altogether. God foretold this through Isaiah. Imagine, the inspiration comes, for the virgin will give birth. What? Come again? (laughs) Did Did I hear that wrong? It would be really hard words to pen. Here's the latest word from God. The virgin will give birth. To a child. And you'll call him Emmanuel. God with us. That'd be very unusual. And then look who this child would be. Isaiah 9 verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he'll be called wonderful counselor. That's okay. Mighty God. Everlasting father. Prince of peace. These were titles for this Messiah, this Savior. Notice too, it doesn't say that a son is born. It says that a child is born. A son is given. The son isn't born because the son existed before the birth of the child. Remember, he's from ancient of days. Jesus didn't come into existence at the birth. That was his incarnation. He came into flesh, but he existed eternally Beforehand with the Father. Imagine that amazing, amazing reality that God wrapped himself in human flesh and came down to earth. Can you imagine if you would have been there, if you would have been one of the shepherds or just somebody there, and you got to hold that little baby, and you're looking at this and you realize. This, pretty angels that just showed up in an amazing way. This is the creator of the universe. I'm holding God. Can you imagine God humbling himself in that way? It's mind-boggling, really. God had been telling about this from the time mankind through Adam first fell into sin. He said right then he began prophesying about a Messiah. And the prophecies got more and more numerous and specific. But they started 4,000 years before. There are in fact 350 detailed specific prophecies of Jesus in the Bible. And God did this in advance so that no one, get this, would miss or mistaken who he was. There was no excuse for not knowing who this baby was. That's the reality of his birth. It's not a fairy tale. It's factual history. So let's look then at the reaction to his birth. Verse 6, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So God knew all this in advance. Why did he allow this long awaited birth to take place in a stable? I mean didn't he know that it was going to happen? He did know. So why did he allow this? Why not some place more fitting? Like a palace. Something appropriate for the God of all creation. Hold that thought for a moment. About It's been a long time now, 35 years ago, uh, when we lived in Albuquerque, my best friend was a man from our church, his name was Dave, and Dave was one of those interesting, amazing guys that was like talented and gifted in just about everything. He was very gifted intellectually, he had a PhD in optics, he was athletic, usually if someone's smart, they're not real athletic, They're kind of nerdy and they can't, like, dribble a ball or anything like that. Or if they're really athletic, they're not real... Well, I won't say that. They struggle academically. Dave was both. And he was gifted spiritually. Man, he had a strong faith. We met together every Tuesday at 6 a.m. And we prayed and we studied the word together for years. And he was gifted musically, too. He was a great musician, great pianist, and he just had it all going. I, I'm assuming he still does. I haven't seen Dave in a while now. But one time, Dave and I, we wrote a couple songs together. And he wrote the the, the music, and I wrote the lyric. And it was, it was really kind of fun. I wasn't great at it, but one of the songs we wrote was called Resting Place. And I don't remember all of it, but... I know the lyrics began like this. It must have been a sign of what would lie ahead. Not a cradle, but a feed trough for your bed. You gave the fox a hole, a bird a nest, but you would have no place to rest. Who will build a home for thee? And this is kind of the, the, the nature of the song. Jesus was born in a manger, and I think it was just a sign of what was coming. It pointed to what lied ahead in a couple different ways. First of all, the manger speaks of Jesus' humility. Philippians 2 says, Who, being very in nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, something to hold on to. But he released it. He let it go. And it says, but made himself nothing nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. That's his birth. That's the incarnation being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, I would say even further, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He didn't just leave heaven for earth. He did leave heaven. And I love what Uh, We had for the Advent reading last week about the distance God traveled to come and be with us. But he came to earth in the most lowly way possible. Jesus could have been born in a palace, but he wasn't. He was born in a manger, and his humility went even further beyond that. He humbled himself and became obedient to death Even death on a cross, his life a ransom for ours. The extent to which Jesus went to humble himself is almost beyond our capacity to imagine, I think. Consider this He measures the universe with the span of his hand, yet he was confined to a woman's womb. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, yet he was born in a stable. He's the redeemer of the world, and yet he was sold for 30 pieces of silver. He's the king of kings, and yet he was on trial before Herod. He's the word of God, yet he did not open his mouth. He's the good shepherd, yet he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He is the living water, yet he was thirsty. He is the Lord of life, and yet he suffered death. The manger speaks of Jesus' humility. It was a sign of what would lie ahead. But it speaks of something more than that also. It speaks of mankind's hostility. In verse 7 of Luke 2, it says, She wrapped them in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. There was no room in the inn that night. And there would be little room in the world in the days which would follow. Jesus went on to say in Matthew 8.20. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have the nests. But the son of man has no place to lay his head. There was no room for him. No place. Even in his death. There was no room for Jesus. The second verse of the song that Dave and I wrote said. Rejected by the world you came to save. You are put to death and placed in a borrowed grave. He didn't even have his own grave. The rulers of the day had those amazing tombs. You've seen Tut's tomb. Uh, incredible treasures, incredible beauty. Jesus didn't even have a tomb. He had to, had to borrow one. Of course, he didn't need it for long, <laughs> just a few days. But it was a borrowed tomb. Let's see how the religious world reacted To this birth announcement of Jesus. Look again at Matthew now. Flip back to Matthew chapter 2. It says the Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born, king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we come to worship him. And then look at King Herod, the king, his reaction. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. He wasn't excited, he wasn't happy. He was disturbed. And all Jerusalem with them. Jerusalem's a holy town. It's like the it's like the center of worship for the Jewish nation. All Jerusalem was disturbed too. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them, "Where was the Christ to be born?" Now, the chief priests and the teachers of the law these were the religious leaders, and they spoke right up. They Said, in Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet was, was writ- has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. They didn't have to go to their Bible app. They didn't have to look it up in their scrolls. They knew it right off the top of their head. Where is he to be born? Ju- Ju- Bethlehem in Judea. Here's why. Here's what the prophet said. They knew it, yet they didn't even bother to go to Jerusalem and check it out. Don't you think they could have gone and seen this thing for themselves? They didn't. John chapter 1, verse 10 and 11 says, He, Jesus, was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Now we have all those prophecies don't want you to miss or mistaken who he is, but the world didn't recognize him, and it's worse. Verse eleven, he came to that which was his own, meaning his own people, the Jews, but his own did not receive him. The lowly shepherds came; they were the outcasts. They were like the vile people. They came, and the Gentile magi. They were like sorcerers, and that's where you get magician, and they were into dreams and astronomy and astrology. They came from a foreign land, but the religious leaders didn't bother to go check it out themselves. How sad. There was no room in the religious world for Jesus. Many people today, whether they come from a religious background or not, they hear some truth about Jesus, and they don't check it out. They just dismiss it without even bothering to look into it. That's what the religious leaders did. There's no room for Jesus in the religious world, and it's much the same today. Most people are willing to accept Jesus as a good teacher, maybe a prophet, but not as the Son of God, the way, the truth, the life. A lot of even denominations. Christian denominations are moving away from the very core tenets of the Christian faith. What about the political world? How did they react? Oh, verse 3 says uh, that Herod was disturbed. And verse 7 says, And Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go make a careful search for the child as soon as you find him. Report to me. So that I too may go and worship him. Herod had no interest in worshiping this little baby king, did he? What did he want to do? Kill him. He wanted to kill him. But once again, the magi weren't in a dream. What a cool way to communicate with a bunch of astrologers and and magicians, sorcerers, but with a star... And in dreams, it was perfect. It was right, just their way that they think. God knows how to get his message through to us when he wants to. So, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And so they do. They flee to Egypt. And in the process... They fulfilled a prophecy of Isaiah 11.1 which says out of Egypt I called my son. Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, called out of Egypt and raised in Nazareth. All in accordance with the prophecies that were laid down centuries before. Take a look at verse 16 of Matthew 2. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Now we can kind of, we're enough years distant from that that we can kind of whitewash that, but just think about that. All of the baby boys. My grandson is about two, and my other little grandson is almost one. All of the baby boys in the region killed by this maniac Herod. It's 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 really it's really stunning to even try to think about that happening. But back in verse two, and the magi inquired about the baby. They didn't ask about the one who would become the king of the Jews. They asked about the one who was born king of the Jews. It's a subtle but important distinction. Jesus was king of the Jews at the moment of his birth it wasn't a title that he later came into he was the king of the Jews and Herod was threatened by this here's the thing Herod had no room in his political world for a power greater than himself he had to be number one and to make sure that he remained number one he had all the little babies killed there's no room for Jesus in the political world either Not much has changed in 2,000 years, has it? Sorry to say. Our society has little room for Jesus. If you think about it, there's no room in the Capitol, in the courtroom, in the newsroom, in the classroom, in the holidays. Not even in the calendar. The dates, B.C., before Christ, are now changed to B.C.E., before common era. That just it makes me seethe when I see that. Before common era. And then instead of A.D. New of our Lord is what that means. It, it's C.E. Common era. But the fact is you can't even write a check. Without acknowledging the birth of Jesus. Within a couple years. There's no room. And seemingly no need for God. And his morality in our society. Just after the. Terrorist attacks of 9 11, Billy Graham's daughter, Ann, was being interviewed by Jane Clayson on the CBS Early Show. And Clayson asked this question. It kind of takes a lot of golf. How could God let something like this happen? That's what she asked. How could God let something like this happen? And here's what Ann Grandlott, how she responded. She said, I believe. God is deeply saddened by this just as we are. But for years, we've been telling God to get out of our schools, our government, and our lives. And being the gentleman that he is, I believe he has calmly backed out. How can we expect God to give us his blessing and protection if we demand that he leave us alone? Those powerful words of truth... See, people reject God entirely. I want nothing to do with you. And then when something happens to them, they raise their fists and shake their fist at God. How could you do this? Ah, uh, that must just pierce the heart of God when he looks at this world. But he didn't come to condemn it. He came to save it. The gospel's good news. Well, that's the reaction to the birth, both religiously, politically, socially, Let's look at the reason for his birth. Matthew's gospel again, chapter 1, it says this in verse 21. It says, maybe verse 22. It says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God came to be near us. It was the purpose for which we were created to have a close, personal relationship with God and in that relationship to live under his blessing as his child. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 1611, In your presence there is fullness of joy, complete, total joy in the presence of the Lord. But from the beginning, mankind chose to disobey God. And we know sin entered the world, and that sin created distance. God couldn't be close. It created distance between sinful man and a holy God. And the Bible says death came because of sin, both physical death and spiritual death, spiritual death being the separation of us from God. So the reason Jesus came was to remove our sin, and the separation, the distance between us so that God could draw near. So that we could have life, not spiritual and physical death. Jesus said this in John 10.10, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I love that verse. We put it on our Christmas card this year. I have come that they may have life, and some translations say, and life abundantly. Overflowing, abundant, fulfilling life. We talked about the thief last week, Satan. He presents this alluring array of enticements. They look and feel so good to our flesh. But in the end, they lead to emptiness and death. He comes to steal take what you have, take what's God's, to kill and to destroy. But Jesus comes that we might have abundant life. He said in John 17, 3, now this is eternal life. What is? He says that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's life to be restored to a knowledge and a relationship with the one true God through his son, Jesus Christ. I like to put it this way. When we receive Jesus as our Savior, God draws near to us, and he does so in the most close, personal, and intimate way possible. He dwells within us, and he does this by his Spirit. Jesus said again in John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him. And get this, we will come to him and make our home with him. God with us. Emmanuel. But here's the question. Is there room in our lives for Jesus? Let's go back to Joseph and Mary for a moment. When they arrived in Bethlehem, there was no room in the inn. It's not that there wasn't a room in the inn. It's that the room was filled with other things, people or things. There was a room. There was just no room in the room. In a similar way, when we talk about people not having room for Jesus, it's not saying that they don't have a place for them. It's saying that they filled it with other things. So there is no room. Now, this is something I was kind of really pondering this week. God created each one of us with the capacity to house his spirit within us. Have you ever thought about that? There is a place, a way in which God's spirit can dwell in us. Now, I don't know the mechanics of it any more than I understand the mechanics of how you can have a soul. And you do have a soul. And when you die, your soul leaves your body and your soul lives on. But while you're here, your soul is in there somewhere. You can't see it on a CAT scan or an MRI, but there is a place for your soul within your body. But there's also a place for God. He created us with the capacity to house his Holy Spirit. Paul wrote this to the believers in Corinth. He said, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? That's that's a marvelous thing. He didn't just come and come to the manger and then go away. He says, I'll go away, but I'll send the counselor, the comforter, the Holy Spirit. He'll be with you 24-7 Right here within us. It's amazing. And Paul wrote to the Ephesians. In him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. We were made for the purpose of housing the spirit of God within us. We have that place, that capacity. Well, many of us have a garage garage in our house right now I'm going to indict myself here (laughs) okay we have a garage and many of us some of us have a garage that's so full of other things that we don't have room to put the car in it I'm kind of like that because my garage has a biplane in it (laughs) and and a mower and a chipper shredder and a snowblower and a shop smith and now, I did build this nice workshop onto my garage. It's over to the left, but that's got the wings in it. And it's got the lathe and the mill and the sheet metal shear and the bandsaw and the, you know, the sheet metal brake and all this stuff. You, you can maybe just make out a sign there that my daughter bought me. It says airplane hangar. See, I've repurposed the garage, and it's now an airplane hangar. But that's not what it was made for. The garage was made for us to put our cars in. But there's no room for even one car, much less two. My wife is very patient with me, especially in the winter. (laughs) I'm thankful her car has that remote start, mine doesn't. But sometimes she actually goes out there while I'm brushing my teeth and starts the car for me and comes back in. it's 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 inconvenient we got to shovel and scrape the snow off the car and because there's no room in the garage well in a similar way people's lives can be like that they were created with the purpose with a place to house god for god to live within us in a way that his presence brings Purpose and meaning and fulfillment and satisfaction to life. It gives us that abundant life that Jesus talked about. But in sin, many people have crowded him out. You know the old adage, there's a God-shaped hole in everyone? Well, that's talking about that place where God can dwell. But people desperately longing for satisfaction in all the wrong things, they try to fill that. With entertainment, alcohol, drugs, fame, materialism, sex, success, busyness, anything to try. I got get I can't get no satisfaction. And so you try all these things. But apart from God, those things will never bring lasting satisfaction. Augustine was an early church founder for century. He wrote an autobiography entitled Confessions. And at the beginning, he wrote this really well-known quote. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find a rest in you. That's what we're talking about. Nothing else is going to satisfy until we have God filling that place for which we were created. That place within us. Maybe you've experienced that in your own life. Or maybe you're still wrestling. Wrestling with God. Wrestling with this idea of a savior. Of a God that can forgive us. And come dwell within us. Well speaking of wrestling. Let me fast forward 1600 years. From Augustine to today. Many of you will recognize this man. He's a professional. He's retired, 70 years old. He's a professional wrestler, Hulk Hogan. He's a five-time WWF champion, six-time WCW champion. He had and has about everything the world can offer. Success, fame, a young beautiful wife, number three, a mansion, On the coast of Florida, a gorgeous mansion. He has a net worth of tens of millions of dollars. And yet he was restless. He was wrestling. Literally, spiritually, figuratively, he was a wrestler. And none of it satisfied him. But I was so delighted to read in the news this week that in this past week, Hulk Hogan and his wife were baptized They were baptized in a Baptist church in Florida. And Hulk Hogan posted this online. Total surrender and dedication to Jesus is the greatest day of my life. Hallelujah. Yeah, it's here for Hulk. Now he's got a little more work to do to prove out that whole dedication thing. He's only four or five days into this. But he finally found the purpose for which he was created. He stopped stuffing the alcohol and the women and the fame and all of that in that place and said, maybe I'll try God. And God came in and God changed him. And Hulk Hogan is a redeemed man. I take him at his word. He found the purpose, the only only thing that can truly satisfy us. And this is, is the reason Jesus came. So the question I'd ask each of us is this. Is there room for Jesus in your life? Is there room? If you never surrendered your life to Jesus, if you're still wrestling, well, the God of all creation wants to draw near. He went to remarkable lengths to be able to draw near to you. The only thing holding you back is you. We often hear the phrase, Jesus is is the reason for the season. And I like it, and I get it. It's true. But maybe for you, this will be your season for the reason. You need to embrace the reason, Jesus Christ, this season. And let it transform your life like it did Hulk Hogan. I hope that today, you'll make room for him you'll give up on those other things that only kill, steal, and destroy, that end in emptiness and death. Embrace the Lord of life. It'll be the greatest day of your life. The chorus to the song that my friend and I wrote, this is the last part of it that I remember, it said, you came as my friend and died for my sin and you loved without end. Jesus, I'll make a place in my life for thee. Come and live in me. I hope that's your prayer. God, you did this for me. I'll make a place. There's room here. Come and live in me. For those who've received Jesus, this is still a question for us as well. Is there room for Jesus in our lives? He indwells us, but is there room in my daily schedule for worship? Here's a tough one. Is there room for prayer? in my life is there room for service is there room in my time and my schedule and my priorities to tell others about what he's done is there room in our lives too well i just want to circle back as we wrap this up and look quickly at what we've heard the christmas story it's not once upon a time it's not a fairy tale it's a factual, historical account. If you don't believe that, you haven't checked it out. Because all, all of the proponents who go and check it out find it to be true. It's a factual account. God's been foretelling the birth of Jesus for centuries. He doesn't want anyone to miss or mistake in it. He doesn't want you to miss or mistake in it. It's there. It's recorded for us. The manger, it speaks of Jesus' humility. He made himself nothing. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why? So that you and I might live. That's why. The manger also speaks of mankind's hostility. Little room for Jesus in our world politically, socially, culturally, even religiously, sadly. But here's the thing, the God of all creation wants to draw near. We maybe couldn't have been there to hold that little baby, the creator of the world, but we can have him within us. We can enjoy fellowship with the living God. He came as Emmanuel, God with us, to take away the separation, the sin that separates us. It creates distance because he wants to be near, as near as he can be. You were created to know God personally and to live under his blessing. He made you with the capacity to house his own spirit within you. And an amazing thing that is. Complete surrender to Jesus, the greatest day of your life. And so the big question is simply this. Is there room in your life for Jesus? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just marvel. If we we stop the busyness long enough to really think about it, we marvel at the miracle of Christmas and at the extent to which you have gone to be near to us. It is truly amazing, God. You're amazing. And you're Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, forgive us for pushing you away for trying to do things our own way, for trying to replace you with material things that will never last or satisfy. God, help us to fully surrender to you. Take control of our lives, Lord. Remove the things that are unpleasing. Rearrange the things that aren't where they should be. God, do a work within us. Take control. Be the Lord the master. Set things right. And God, fill us with your spirit. Help us to experience this great joy that comes in your presence. It starts now, Lord, and it never, ever ends. God, we worship you. We adore you, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name and in your power that we pray. Amen. Let's worship the Lord. Go ahead and stand up.